0: You are listening to episode 10 of the Money Owners podcast with me, Morgan Rochard. Money Owners is a podcast for people who want to be mentally and financially crushing it. This podcast does not provide investment advice and nothing in this podcast should be misconstrued to be investment advice. If you'd like more information on Money Owners Coaching, the podcast, the homework, and everything I have to offer, visit moneyowners.com. What's happening, my fellow money owners? Today is Q&A day. I'm super excited. We've been talking about Q&A for a while. I asked you guys to send me your questions, and you all did, and we have some really good ones planned for today. And with that, I'll just jump right in. So first question. Morgan, I've been listening to the show and decided to take an honest look at my personal expenses. I've been working really hard over the past few years to build my business. However, cash flow is still tight, and I want to cut back on some expenses until my income cre- increases. But I noticed that all of the things I do to de-stress are the things that I spend most on. What do I do? This is a fantastic question. I'm really excited to answer this. So that's kind of really common, for lack of a better word. So basically, what I found with most of my clients is that the things that we like to do and the things that bring us the most joy are the things that we tend to spend the most amount of money on. And that doesn't mean to rip the carpet out from under you and stop spending money on those things. You just need to sort of take into account what your income is. So For example, if I only make, let's say, $50,000 a year, but I've decided that I'm going to spend $10,000 a year on my vacation because that's how I de-stress, you can see how that would be well beyond my means and not something that I should be doing since $10,000 is roughly 10, um, I'm sorry, 20% of my take-home pay. So when it comes to something like that, I think you need to actually evaluate what your total income is. And then look at it in percentage terms of what you're spending on to de-stress. So I get that you're working really, really hard, and maybe you feel like you deserve to have a bunch of massages, take a lavish vacation, spend lots of money, let's say, on, I don't know, movies to de-stress or games or whatever it is that's your vice. But take a look at how much that is relative to the income coming in. And then say to yourself, okay, is this really how I want to be spending my money if I'm trying to, let's say, increase the runway so that I can continue to build my business? Because I think most of the time we'll find that whatever it is that we're spending money on might not be as important as whatever it is that we want to accomplish with as far as increasing our income. So for me, when I started my business, I knew I needed to cut back my expenses. And I did what I could to do that to make my runway last as long as possible because it was much more important for me to be able to have a financial planning practice that could grow and that I could sustain over like the first few years that are typically really hard and in a business and put some of the other stuff on the back burner. That said, I knew I couldn't. Stop spending money on, let's say, my gym. So for me, like my gym was my place that I can go to de-stress to kind of get away, to get out of my head, to do all that stuff. So I continued to spend money on the gym, but I capped it. So like I had an expensive monthly gym type membership, as many New Yorkers seem to. (laughs) I'm not immune to that either. Um, But I went all the time. So I felt like it was worth it. But that said, like, I didn't buy, like, lots of fancy gym clothes or lots of equipment or other stuff. Like, I tried to keep it under wraps so that, like, that, the part of my gym, that part was really expensive, but the rest of it wasn't. So kind of keep in mind what you're doing. The other thing is, is, like, stress, stress is a matter of the mind, so I get that you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, what does she know? I'm so stressed out with running my business and doing this, this, and that. Like, you have no idea how stressed out I am. But, like, stress is actually a thought that you're having, and it's a choice that you're making. You're choosing to be stressed. You're choosing to let the things in your life cause you stress. And you're choosing to let the thoughts that you're having about that have create this feeling of stress. So I would say another thing to do if you actually are looking to cut back on some of your expenses and also just improve your the quality of your life while you grow your business. It might be a good time to sit back, think to yourself, what is the thought that I'm having that's causing me to be so stressed? And is this something that I can unpack and turn into something that serves me rather than something that doesn't. So, here's a good example. And this is actually something that that I felt and thought in my own business. And sometimes I have the thought of I have so much to do. I'm completely overwhelmed and I can't possibly finish it. Um, That is actually causing me stress right now, even having that thought. Um, But I think like it is a thought because when I really take the time to evaluate what it is that I'm doing with my time and my life, like am I actually spending 100% of my time working on my business or even being with my family, which are the two things that are really important to me? No, that's definitely not what I'm doing. Sometimes like I'm on, you know the interwebs doing stuff like wasting time, or I'm like, you know, caught in a black hole in LinkedIn or Instagram or one of these other things. Like, these are things that we do. And we say to ourselves that it's helping us de-stress, but is it actually helping us de-stress? Or is it just wasting time that then causes us to feel overwhelmed, which then causes us to feel stressed? So for me, the the number one way I was actually able to de-stress was by really being deliberate about how I spend my time And magically, I started to have more time when I started to do that. So I'm wondering if maybe some of that is something that's contributing to what's happening to you in your question. And then the last thing I would say is enjoy the stuff that you do spend on de-stressing. Like enjoy and savor every minute of it because I feel like you probably don't need as much of it as you think you do to de-stress. You might just need to like savor the moment, be there, be present, be be in whatever you're doing to de-stress, to actually de-stress rather than using it as a way of just kind of like buffering through some time. All right, next question. So here we go. Morgan, we are two years into our business and I say we because I am including my wife, even though she is a W-2 employee at a company, but not mine. She still has to live with me though, and I get paid very irregularly. I am an artist and i can count on my royalties that get paid around the same time each year but i only get paid an additional two to three times other times throughout the year in large unpredictable chunks how do i plan for this this is a fantastic question and one that i hope that my listeners will enjoy so i have sort of a five-step process when i think about this the first thing is you have to plan around what's most regular so you have to pay base expenses expenses with the thing that comes in most regularly. So it, for this person in this question, that happens to be the royalties and also the wife's W-2 income. The second thing is to account for your business expenses. The third thing is to estimate taxes, run payroll, and send in, or send in quarterly estimates when the large chunks come in. And then the fourth thing is to like keep a lid on spending while in dry spells or until you're able to you know, set aside funds properly. And then the fifth thing is better planning when the rest of the funds arrive. So let's work through all of these things. The first thing being plan around what's most regular. So let's say you always know that you get 50 grand in August from your royalties. And you also have a wife that gets a W-2 income. So let's say she makes $100,000. So regularly that $100,000 is coming in, but obviously not all at once. She gets paid throughout the year. And then the other $50,000, let's say, comes in in the middle of the year. You can do a number of things. First of all, you can plan your expenses to be specifically around that, those two incomes. Um, and if you know that it's always going to come in on a certain date, you can basically save 100% of the money that comes in, let's say, in August, like we're saying, using in this example. And then you can ration out basically $4,100 a month, if it was $50,000, that's 50000 divided by 12 for regular expenses. And, okay, I'm sure you're thinking to yourself, well, what about taxes? So I would say that the more predictable payments shouldn't actually be used to pay taxes because you're a business owner. You get to choose how you pay your taxes and when you pay your taxes. And that said, like, you should pay them regularly and you should do what I was talking about with running payroll or sending in quarterly estimates. But you don't necessarily have to do that at exactly the times that the IRS tells you to do that you should be working with the accountant on this stuff. I don't give tax advice, but I will say, like, if you aren't paying as regularly as the IRS expects you to, it could come with some penalties. But that said, like, penalties are probably, they're probably more in your favor, That say, than racking up a bunch of credit card debt. So I would say, like, if, if the most regular things, if you can plan your personal expenses around those, that's the best way to go. As far as, like, the rest of the stuff that you have to do, it's it's kind of like, it's really important to account for your business expenses because you have to know how much of your money that's coming in is actually going to be allocated towards business expenses. That way you can get a good idea of actually how much you need to be paying in, let's say, those quarterly estimates to the IRS. So what I would say is, let's say you're not using that regular payment to pay taxes, but as the other large chunks come in throughout the year, you actually have to overpay essentially taxes because you didn't pay on the rest of it. And your options for that is running something running something like payroll, so you would run it on a monthly basis, or um, you can send in quarterly estimated payments as they come in. And basically, there are a number of ways to run payroll that would possibly work for a business owner who gets paid very irregularly. The one way you can do it is you just run it every month regardless of what happens. You would essentially, like, you would cut yourself a check, but you wouldn't actually deposit that check, but you would you would cut yourself a check, but then you would specifically pay taxes throughout the year on in regular intervals. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it is actually to run payroll irregularly. You actually have that option available to you. You don't have to run it every single month. You can run it in the months that you get paid. So that's another option for making sure that you stay up on your taxes and that you're also managing cash flow as well by making sure you're paying the IRS when you can, but then keeping you know the money around for yourself for when you need it. And then the other way you could do it is just pay in quarterly estimated payments on the IRS's schedule. Um, I would say if you get paid only two to three times a year, the quarterly estimated payments are probably not going to work for you. I would say payroll is probably your best bet because you can just run payroll on the months that you get paid rather than worrying about sending in level quarterly payments when you might not actually have cash flow to do that. And if you pay in about 90% of your tax burden before January, January 15th, you're usually fine. But I would say like it is a good, it is a good best practice to be paying taxes as you are making income. All right. So what if you need more than whatever that regular payment is that we just, we were just talking about 50 grand in this example to live on? And yeah, I bet you do. <laughs> Who actually lives on 50 grand and lives in the city? I don't know anybody. Um, Maybe you should move to the middle of the country. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, so let's say, though, that you have a bunch of irregular expenses as well um, in addition to your irregular income. And that you may or may not agree with me on, but if you actually thought about what your expenses are you would start to realize that not all of them happen at the same time. For instance, you have life insurance. Maybe you only pay that once a year. You take a vacation or a couple of vacations. You're probably not paying for that vacation, you know, in $100 clips every month or whatever it is, however much your vacation costs. Um, Or let's say you send your kids to some sort of private school or nursery program or you, you know, you have, I, I hear this all the time about the twos and threes program where you have to, you know, give them all this tuition up front at the beginning of the year. So like these things are irregular expenses versus like your mortgage or your groceries or things that you have to do every single day. Those are kind of regular. So the best practice really is, is to calculate what your regular monthly burden is and make sure hopefully that like whatever that royalty check is, is that you're able to cover that with, um, you're able to use the money that comes in on a regular basis, let's say from the wife's salary or a royalty check to cover that. And that you're really only using the big chunks that you get irregularly throughout the year to pay for the other things that are happening. That said, like, you might not actually be in this situation. And you might, be, you might actually be in a situation where that's not an option for you because you've already blown through all of your money. Um, in that case, like you really need to start evaluating what it is or that you are spending on. And if it's really worth sort of racking up maybe some consumer debt to do it, or maybe if you can have a home equity line, even on your house to be pulling against it for absolute, you know, for the absolute worst possible times that you need it. I would say that that could work too, but that's definitely a last resort and checking your expenses would be the first thing I would do. And then lastly there really needs to be better planning when the funds actually arrive. So, let's say you want to pay for like your kid's school or pay for a vacation. You have to set that money aside when a big chunk comes through. So, this actually applies to I would say anybody who gets paid irregularly. So, for like the W2 employees who have really high bonuses that only happen once or twice a year, you have to actually do the same thing as a business owner that gets gets paid irregularly because if you actually want to spend some of your bonus money, Um, and you want to make sure that you have the money left over to do it, but, and you want to live, let's say beyond, let's say just your salary, you have to be really good about setting this stuff aside. So I actually have a client who takes this to a meticulous extreme and has, I think close to 10 different bank accounts all labeled differently for like rainy day fund, you know, taxes, um, kid's school, vacation, um, they have all of them labeled there's definitely more than that that I'm not thinking of and on, on the spot here But that's what I would say like you should do if that if you're a person who wants to be able to set aside money for things that happen Irregularly or things that are happening for for you throughout the year Or if you really if you don't even have let's say a royalty check that you can rely on um, And you really need to be planning throughout the year You might actually even need an account that's like monthly expenses And when you get paid that big chunk of money you dump everything that you need to actually cover your monthly expenses in that one account Um, it's definitely an exercise in mental accounting for sure. And there's more planning that you have to do as a result of getting paid irregularly. That said though, it's not, it's not totally like not doable. It's just, you have to make time for it. And I think that a lot of the problem that people run into, particularly artists is that you don't want to deal with the money stuff. It's one of those things where you have a thought in your brain that like, that's not something you like to do for whatever reason. And maybe that's also a thought that you can evaluate of like, okay, well, I don't actually like doing this stuff, but I really like having you know money in the bank to actually pay for things and not have anxiety around paying for things. So like you might need to start weighing which is more important to you. Do you want to have like uncertainty about whether or not you're going to pay your bills, or do you want to just sit down, you know, every first Wednesday of the month and actually evaluate like <laughs> what your expenses are, what you need in your account, and all that other stuff to make things happen. All right, cool. So. The other thing I would say is you got to take into account expenses and taxes, and I sort of mentioned this a little bit, but basically if you've got, let's say, $200,000 in revenue per year, it doesn't mean you could spend $200,000. I feel like sometimes we totally forget that like we have business expenses and we also have to pay taxes, um, and therefore there's a lot less money left over. You might have, let's say if you make two hundred grand revenue, you might have fifty to a hundred thousand dollars in expenses, and then your net is a hundred grand. So right from there, and then your maybe then you have to pay like twenty-five percent to thirty percent taxes, depending on, you know, who else is making money in your family. So now you're down to seventy grand and you start at two hundred grand. Like, I think sometimes I know this is super self explanatory, but we don't think in our heads about the fact that like expenses add up and we have a net left over and that net is much lower than the gross. Um, and I know I think about that quite a bit cause like I have clients in my financial planning practice and I think about my revenue and top line revenue growth is great, and I'm super excited about it. And then I look at my net, and I'm like, ooh, I should probably be looking at my expenses. So <laughs> I feel like you know this kind of stuff happens to everybody, and it's not necessarily um, one of those things that it's it seems like super obvious and evident that you know there that 200 grand in revenue doesn't actually mean 200 grand in your pocket. But sometimes it's a good reminder that you know you're. You're a business owner, you gotta pay taxes. You actually have to also pay self employment taxes, and you also have expenses. So, all of these things are things to be thinking about. All right, next question What is the optimal amount of Bitcoin to own in order to protect the private key and invest in the future? So, uh, money owners, listeners out there, my husband is a Twitter celebrity, and I always ask him to retweet all my stuff for me. Because, you know, I'm a wife and that's what I ask him to do. And he's like the best and he always does that for me. So we're from time to time going to get some cool Bitcoin questions in here. And I really wanted to include this actually because I feel like I hear this quite a bit of like, what what do I do with my money? How do I evaluate whether or not to hold this new apps, asset of Bitcoin in my portfolio? What should I even be thinking about regarding this? So I wanted to include this question here for all the listeners out there who are thinking about maybe investing in something like Bitcoin um, and want to know how much they should invest. So the optimal amount is, it's definitely an it depends question, but I think one to 5% of net worth, depending on your risk tolerance is a fine investment. And 10%, I would say would be a hard maximum on any initial position. And if you're going to do something like 10% of your total net worth, you must have a blindingly high risk tolerance like you must be so willing to take risk it's unreal like you have to be the kind of person that can lose 100% of your investment so be willing to lose 10% of your total net worth and not care (laughs) and not need that money okay so you have to really think about what a percentage of net worth really means. And so for example, let's say I'm worth a million dollars. If I invest one percent of my net worth, then I'm investing um, I'm sorry, if I invest one <laughs> percent of my net worth on a million dollars, then I am investing ten thousand dollars. If I am investing ten percent of my net worth on a million dollars, I am investing a hundred thousand dollars. So somewhere between ten thousand dollars and a hundred thousand dollars, if I have a million dollars in net worth is probably appropriate given what my risk tolerance is okay so let's break down risk tolerance because risk tolerance is both the willingness and the ability to take risk and your willingness might not actually match your ability and vice versa so what is willingness to take risk your willingness is actually like what you're willing to do so pretty self-explanatory there so for somebody with a low risk tolerance willingness to take risk is very is is low like you're not actually willing to part with your money even though there is a chance that you will make more money on that money. Whereas willingness for somebody with a high risk tolerance is that you're willing to part with your money because you want any chance at making more money, right? That would mean that you have a super high risk tolerance. And then there's ability. So ability generally means that you have more assets that you can risk because you don't actually need that money. Whereas, and that would be a high risk tolerance, whereas a low risk tolerance for given ability means that you really don't have that much stocked away in, let's say, an emergency fund and other assets, in which case, like, you really shouldn't be risking any money because you don't have the ability to lose that money. Whereas if you have more money, you have the ability to lose that money because you don't actually need it. So generally, people with more money have a higher ability to take risk. And generally, people with less money have less ability to take risk. So both of those things, willingness, whether or not you're willing to take risk, and ability play into what your risk tolerance is. Does that make sense? I hope it does, listeners. Okay, so then there's something called asset goal or asset liability matching. So you have to match the asset that you are buying with the goals that you actually have. So let's say, for example... The person in this, this person who asked this question wanted to buy a house in three years and wanted to know whether or not to put 10% of their net worth in Bitcoin. I would say that's probably not their best bet. I mean, it would also depend on what the other 90% of their assets were. But generally, if you have short-term goals that are coming up relatively soon and they're going to use a lot of money, you don't want to be piling a bunch of your money into long-term assets. So something like Bitcoin is a very long-term asset, something that you have to wait a very long time for it to pan out because you don't want to be selling at the exact wrong time of it bouncing around in price. Um, much like the stock market, to be honest. So you don't want to be going out to buy a house when you own a bunch of stocks with that money, because it might be the time that you go to buy the house might be the time that the market drops. So that's what I mean by having, you know, don't use long-term assets to fund short-term goals. And Bitcoin is a very, 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 very long-term investment. (laughs) So don't buy a house in the next two years with your Bitcoin, because you might be very disappointed when you go to make that down payment and Bitcoin is in a bear market. Um, Okay, so from there, the other thing to think about is like, whether or not this is kind of a hobby for you. So um, my husband is very involved in Bitcoin. Um, I wouldn't call it a hobby. It's actually a business for him, but I would say business or hobby. Like, do you need to have skin in the game for something like this? And if so, how much are you willing to have skin in the game? So maybe for you, it might make sense to have that hard maximum of 10% of an, on an initial position because, hey, this is what I do. This is what I work in. This is, I want like the money that I have. I want to be backed by that. I want to like, you know, put my money where my mouth is. Um... That said, like, I'm going to compare this to venture capital investments because um, those are also really long-term and super risky and you can lose 100% of your investment. And um, also, nothing in this is actually investment advice. I I probably should have prefaced that with this. (laughs) I feel like I'm always going on and on about how I'm not giving anybody investment advice here. I'm actually just, like, breaking down for you how to view a very long-term risky asset, and I hope that that makes sense. So... Getting back to venture capitalism, so somebody like Jason Calacanis, who runs a podcast about venture capital investing and you know invested in a lot of unicorn-type investments, I don't really know what his asset allocation looks like, but I'm just going to make a conjecture here that Jason Calacanis, or really any famous investor, isn't like going balls to the walls on one investment, <laughs> for lack of a better term. And actually when you listen to him talk, he says that he doesn't do that. Like he actually says that it's a good idea for you. And for venture capital firms in general, this is what they do. They invest a small amount of money in a lot of different things, knowing that most of it will go belly up. So it's kind of the same thing with Bitcoin. Like, I guess my husband would have a totally different opinion on this, because he works in Bitcoin and has a lot of very loud opinions about Bitcoin, but it is possible that Bitcoin goes to zero. It is possible that a lot of cryptocurrencies go to zero. I th- I mean, I think that, like, Bitcoin will probably do better than the other ones. Uh, maybe I'm biased from listening to all the Bitcoin stuff all the time. But that said, like, you can lose 100% of your investment in something like this, and therefore... Like, you have to be willing to lose 100% of your investment. And therefore, like, you should spread the risk around by not having 100% of your net worth in something like Bitcoin. That said, like, it depends on how you're viewing it as well. So if you're viewing Bitcoin, if you actually think that, like, Bitcoin could be a global currency at some point, and you're using it as, let's say, an insurance policy. And, you know, your risk tolerance is, let's say, moderate. And you're like, okay, I'm going to put 2% of my net worth in Bitcoin, and then I'm going to forget about it. Then you you come into a position where you have to start thinking about rebalancing. So let's say you bought Bitcoin, you know, back in 2013, you put 2% of your net worth in it and it's grown quite a bit. And now let's say you're up to 15% of your net worth or something like that because it's grown so much. Um, I would say now you have to decide whether or not you want to rebalance and rebalancing means do you want to take it back to 2% of net worth or do you want to just let it ride? I think it kind of depends on how you're viewing your investment. So if your original investment thesis was my investment in this is an insurance policy against, you know, let's say Bitcoin becoming a global currency and me not owning any, then I say you put 2% of your net worth in it and you don't rebalance and you just let it go until that thesis plays out because it was an insurance policy. It's not meant for you for some sort of short term investment thesis. If your risk tolerance, though, however, is much lower than, let's say, somebody else, you might actually want to rebalance and you might not necessarily need to take it back to, let's say, the 2% of net worth that you started at, but it is a good idea to like to be thinking about, okay, well, what do I feel comfortable with? Well, maybe back in 2013, you invested $10,000 or whatever, and you just want to get your money back that you had invested in. So sometimes rebalancing just means selling your cost basis. Um, other times it actually means taking it all the way back down to its original percentage. Um, and then you also, if you are going to do something like that, you have to start thinking about whether or not you're going to like how you're going to reinvest that money and everything else. So, um, yeah, I'm just bringing it up, but like, I think that that these are all things to be thinking about when you're thinking about the optimal amount of Bitcoin to own and how to be thinking about investing in the future. And the last point in this question is that you asked about securing your private keys. And I would say I'm probably the worst person to ask about this. I just do whatever my husband tells me to do. So um, (laughs) I think you should probably defer to the experts about the security piece. That said, I mean, I do know the difference between a hot wallet and cold storage, um, which is really like your hot wallet is like cash in your pocket versus you know, cold storage is just, I think, cash lying around your house or in the ca- uh, like couch cushions or something like that versus cash in the bank versus investments at a custodian. We can start going through the layers of how deep you want to go of coldness. Um, but yeah, I would definitely defer to somebody who knows more than me about that. And I hope that answers your question. And if it doesn't, then, you know, reach back out and I'll try to answer it further. All right. Next question in question, you are in your mid-30s, have a large mortgage and a small pension, but enough capital to pay off your mortgage or in full or throw it at your pension. Which do you do? So I actually reached out to this person and asked them where they were located because I was thinking to myself, it can't be the U.S. <laughs> it just can't be the U.S. We don't have like nice pensions like that that you can throw more money at. We don't do that here. Yeah, we have like these retirement accounts that you can only put a max amount of money in or you have a pension that like your employer is actually providing for you. Um, But we don't have like the same type of accounts. So anyways, um, without knowing that much more about you, I would assume being in the mid-30s means that you have a decent rate in your mortgage, probably under 5%. And you probably have a lot more time before retirement and could, can potentially have quite a bit of money to grow tax deferred um, in your pension. But it really does depend. And I know this is not a good answer and probably not what you're looking for. But I would say you have to like be thinking, what are the thoughts that you're having about your mortgage and what are the thoughts that you're having about your retirement plan? I wish it could be so simple as, like, I mathematically want to do the best thing with my funds. And that might actually be what you're thinking. But, like, what is the best thing? The best thing is actually subjective. Because even if I crunch these numbers for you, the most logical thing might not be the best. So... I would say, like, if your mortgage is under 5% and your pension can, let's say, earn, you know, 7 plus percent, then there is a spread there. And also, like, you're having money grow tax deferred and you're probably getting um, some sort of um, discount on your taxes as a result of putting money into the retirement account. So from that perspective, it probably does make sense, um, strictly logically, to be paying off your mortgage as slowly as possible and putting away as much money in your retirement account as you need. That said, I mean, I don't know. You tell me. Like, does your brain actually feel like the mortgage is crushing debt to you and you lose so much sleep over it that, like, even if you do the most logical thing, that you wouldn't actually feel like you were doing the right thing for you? Like, I think sometimes those are questions that we have to ask. Or, like, let's say retirement feels super far away and not worth saving for and the debt feels more more urgent. Are you more carefree about your mortgage or, and more concerned with retirement? Like, these are all things that you actually have to take into account when you work on the financial factors. So I feel like this happens to me quite a bit where I get clients who they have scenarios like this and they want to know what the right thing to do is with their money. And sometimes the right thing isn't always the right thing, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um... Yeah, like what we do, a lot of what we do in financial planning, it's not actually science because there's a human element to it. We actually we have to live with the decisions that we make in our financial situation, and a lot of the time, while we're while we're living through it, it's much harder to actually do than it is to to do the wrong thing. Sometimes it's a lot easier to do the thing that's illogical because of the thoughts that we're having than it is to do what would be considered the quote unquote right thing, the logical thing, um, just because our thoughts are incompatible with that. So I would say the first place to start on a question like this would be your thoughts. And you really need to evaluate what what having the mortgage means to you. And not it does. your thought can't be a question. Your thought has to be like a legitimate thought that's a sentence that's not a question that invokes some sort of feeling in you. So if your thought about your mortgage is something so simple as, I don't mind having debt, right? The feeling there might just be like, carefree. Whereas if the thought about your mortgage is, this mortgage is really large, and it makes me feel uncomfortable, even though I do have the cash flow to pay for it. You can already tell where I'm going with this, but the feeling is uncomfortable. And then your actions as a result of that are going to be probably doing things to get rid of the debt that you have. So that might mean that you're more willing to put money down Uh, towards your mortgage than than you are to put money towards retirement. That said, it can go the other way, right? So if you're feeling like, oh, my God, I'm not going to have enough money for retirement, if that's the thought, then the feeling is like, you know, uncertainty. And um, you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable about your retirement situation, even though it's so far away. I would say, like, in that case, then maybe it does make sense to put more towards your pension. Um, But from a strictly, like, um, rate of return standpoint, um, it probably does make more sense to put into your pension versus your mortgage, but I would definitely evaluate all of the other thoughts that you're having and where you want, what you want to accomplish in your life. Because, I mean, the other thing being, you might have other stuff happening in your life besides just your mortgage and that retirement plan. You might actually want to have some savings outside your home and outside your retirement to fund other goals. Like, I don't know. I can't think of one off the top of my head. Maybe you have kids. Maybe you want to fund their, their schooling. Or maybe yeah, you and your spouse want to take um, a year-long trip all over the world and you want to have a, an account that you save for for that. Or maybe you want to pay for a kid's wedding one day. Like, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of reasons why maybe you would save outside your mortgage and your retirement plan. So, um, yeah. And... So I'm going to get back to, let's say, like the retirement plan is something like a, a defined contribution plan, like a 401k and is not guaranteed versus a pension that is guaranteed. So stocks have generally returned something like eight to nine percent over a 30 year period. So um, and obviously past performance doesn't equal future results. So, you know, take this eight to nine percent with a grain of salt. But that's typically what stocks do. So that's basically all we can go on. Um If you are in your 30s, presumably you will not touch this money until you're taking required minimum distributions at 75 and a half if you live in America. Or at the very earliest, you would be taking it at 59 and a half. Um, it's not a guarantee that you would earn something like eight to 9% over a 30 year period, but you'll likely learn some earn somewhere around there. So I would say like from a risk perspective, like in the last question where we were talking about, you know, willingness and ability to take risk, you actually have a much higher ability to take risk in your thirties for something like retirement. If you're not going to be using the funds for a very long period of time. Um, and that also plays into, you know, what are your goals and what are you using that money for and doing some asset liability matching. Alrighty. We kind of blew through all those questions. I'm really surprised. I really thought that they was, these were going to last longer. So I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Money Owners. We will have a Q&A every five episodes. So if you're already thinking, man, I wish I had asked her a question for episode 10. I got you covered. Ask it for episode 15. Send it in. You can go to moneyowners.com forward slash ask Morgan. That's M-O-R-G-E-N. I know my parents spelled my name wrong. Um, but you know, I got used to it and it's probably better that way anyways. So yeah, go to ask Morgan and send me over a podcast. The other thing is we got the links fixed. So this podcast is now moneyowners.com forward slash 10. And you could do that now on every single one of our podcasts. I know I've been complaining since I started doing this that I didn't know how to do it. Somebody awesome told me about a 301 redirect and I figured out how to do it. And I'm feeling really cool about it. So um, yeah, go to moneyowners.com forward slash 10. And if you like the show, please write a review on iTunes. It really helps. I'll see you guys in two weeks. And, I, and uh, thanks and have a good weekend.